Whether in the media, our government, or our schools, Christianity faces tremendous intellectual persecution. This program stands on the intellectual front lines. With disarming honesty, we engage the most difficult issues facing Christians today. I want to welcome you to Theology Unplugged, the radio outreach of Credo House Ministries in Edmond, Oklahoma. We sit down over lattes at the Credo House coffee shop and just talk theology. I'm Michael Patton, president of Credo House Ministries. I'll be leading the discussion along with Tim Kimberly, director of ministries for Frontline Church Edmond, Sam Storms, lead pastor of Bridgeway Church, and finally J.J. Side, pastor of community and discipleship at Bridgeway Church. Theology Unplugged. We just sit around this table, drink lattes, and carry on the conversation that probably would be going on anyway. That's We're right. just trying to put a recorder to our ears. That's right. Tim, Sam, JJ, good to see you guys. Um, welcome to everybody here. I, I don't think we've announced this on the broadcast yet, but we now are on BOT. Those of you listening on BOT know that, but some of you who listen through the podcast and iTunes, uh, that is one of the reasons why things may be a little bit different in format, timing, and and uh, doing this series. This is a special series that we're doing for BOT. It is difficult passages of the Bible. I think that's what we're calling it, right? Or is it yep. hard passages of Scripture? Difficult yep. passages of the Bible. Hard passages of Scripture. Tough texts. <laughs> Things that make me scratch my head. Yeah. Tough text. You have a book on this, Sam, right? I do. Well, I'm sorry. I didn't want to promote your book, but let's go ahead and do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Tough Topics. Tough Topics. Yeah. Published by Crossway. Yeah. And Volume 2, uh, Tough Topics 2, comes out next year. Uh, yeah. How many passages? Or is it topics? Well, just... it's a little bit of both, half and half. I did 25 in the first volume and do 25 in the second. Wow. Well, good. Well, you ought to be prepared then, uh, unless you forgot them. I did. I wrote them and just completely deleted them <laughs> from my memory. Well, this is Theology Unplugged, and we try to um, not only discuss things that are relevant and important and what we feel are deep theological issues maybe other people aren't getting someplace else, but we do it in a manner that we're trying to be as honest as we can. And the passage that we're coming to today, Hebrews chapter 6, we'll read the specific verses in a moment, but uh, again, is another one of these passages that causes people trouble whenever they read it. It is almost, whenever I read it, it's like, is this an assault to my understanding of the gospel? Does this create fear within me where I am supposed to be without fear? It's not unlike the unforgivable sin topic we've covered already, but this one has a, a very specific issue having to do with uh, uh, falling away from the faith. Can people fall away from the faith? Yeah. Hebrews chapter 6 and I think it's best at least to talk about the difficulty of this passage to start in verse 4. Mm-hmm. It says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the good word and the powers of the age to come and then fall away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucify themselves to the Son of God and put him to open shame. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, Tim. 
mm-hmm. and possible. So there, there's a case, I suppose, right, that it's impossible to be renewed to repentance. Yeah. What, what is this talking about? Because the God, th- this doesn't sound like good news. This sounds like uh, scary news. Mm-hmm. This sounds like the hellfire brimstone, legalistic, keep people in control, quote this passage anytime somebody is out of line in your church, keep them in control to your kids, keep them in control. And isn't that the basic problem with this passage? Why we bring it up here is because it is, it doesn't seem like it goes together with the gospel to say at any time it is impossible to renew to repentance. Yes? No. No? That's not the problem? <laughs> well, actually, I think uh, in, a, in a very real sense, this is good news because I believe that the author of Hebrews is addressing people in the church who have been exposed repeatedly to the gospel, who have perhaps been raised, as it were, under the umbrella uh, of God's grace, under the covering uh, that is provided by the body of Christ. They have been uh, recipients of the Lord's Supper. They have perhaps been baptized. They've heard the word of God. They've seen miracles. Maybe they have uh, been prayed for and they've been uh, received incredible blessings. And Can yet, I stop you? And yet they have not come to Can faith I in you? Jesus. I got to stop you. Okay. Because you're solving the problem way too fast. No, no, no. You got to escalate the problem. I'm just telling you, this is not bad news. This is, this is unplugged. Escalate the problem. Get everybody scared. Well, <laughs> I am. I was until you interrupted me. I was about to. Yeah, these are people who are on the very brink of conversion. They have experienced massive blessings. They have experienced the power of the Spirit, but they're not born again. And our author is saying, "Look, you need to close with Christ. Um, you need to understand that if you continue to be the recipient of these kinds of blessings, and then you harden yourself." And you utterly repudiate Christ and walk away, which I think is what he has in mind when he says, fall away. Um, you are putting yourself beyond the reach of God's grace, not because God isn't capable of saving you if he so chose. It's simply because um, you have placed yourself in a position where you have so utterly hardened your heart that God simply lets you go. And um, he simply declines to work with you any longer. You have crossed a boundary point beyond which there is any hope of restoration. And so, in a sense, it's a, it's, it's a gospel message. It's a proclamation to them uh, to take very seriously um, the, the truths that they have heard, to which they've been consistently exposed, and say, look— don't make the mistake of thinking you can presume upon God's grace and these many blessings. Uh, if you turn away, if you expose Christ to open shame, uh, you forfeit any hope and possibility of, of salvation. Is this, this is a theme in Hebrews, too. I mean, you've got the theme in Hebrews, which is great. We've got the escalation of Christ and the, the preeminence of Christ and the preeminence of Christ over so many different things. And as you're reading one passage, you get you get excited, you get you get uh, a deeper understanding of so much of the the grace of God, but then there's just these warnings that come, and they they just seem to come up over and over and over. And I guess guess my question to you guys, and and we'll probably look at some of these warnings, Hebrews chapter 10 comes to mind for me, 10 verse 28, for if we go on sinning willfully, 
after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Is this, is this uh, something where you guys, first of all, get people that ask you about this, that are struggling with this, this passage, and where Absol- do they go? Absolutely. I mean, you're right, Tim, uh, Michael, the way you set it up, and, and, and uh, you could be trying to help a believer gain deeper assurance that Christ has, is holding them and won't let them go. And one of the first things we'll often say is, well, what about Hebrews 6? So it's obviously a passage that's lodged firmly in many people's minds, and I think you guys are working around an answer. There's a category in the New Testament that most Christians don't have. And if they had that category, Hebrews 6 would feel less overwhelming. And you see it in John chapter 6. It's this idea of a, of a non-believing believer. That there's, there's someone that could be referred to as a disciple of Jesus, who Jesus could then turn around and say to them, um, I want to challenge you because I know that you don't believe. Mm-hmm. And then these very same people that in John 6.60 are referred to as his disciples, as Jesus begins to press them, saying, there are some of you who do not believe, they aren't able to handle what he's telling them. And then it says in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with them. So in some sense, they were his disciples. And yet in another sense, Jesus could say, but you don't really believe. You don't really realize that you have got to cling to me if you have, want to have any hope of coming to the Father. Hmm. Yeah, I think that maybe the clearest way is to to say that we're talking about when you think of the Christian faith and you think of of being a Christian, we're kind of talking about two groups of people here. One, uh, John 3.16, very clearly saying that God so loved the world, he sent his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So it's not believe and then don't screw up and you'll not perish but have everlasting life, but just truly belief equals salvation. So if you believe, you have eternal life. And and that is crystal clear. And I think what happens sometimes is just the fog of war of our life comes in and we start adding things to our salvation. Like, surely God doesn't mean it's that simple. I need more. And people who are truly believers in Jesus start getting worried by Hebrews chapter 6 because they think, wow, maybe there's more to what I need to do except believe, and I wonder if maybe I'm always on the verge of losing my faith, and maybe one day I'll get to heaven and God will say, sorry, didn't you read Hebrews 6? You're not a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but what we're saying, though, Get away is from that, me. I never knew you. Yeah, and what we're saying, though, is that we're not talking there. What we're talking about is like what JJ said, is that there's another group of people who will say, I'm a believer, I'm a believer, uh, and they're considering themselves a disciple, but they there's a certain amount though where they they have been around Christians but they are not a Christian well, let me let me I, I think we need to continue to solve it exegetically meaning from from the passage itself but let me set up a kind of a theological category without getting too confusing you've got on one side people who believe that once you're saved you can't lose your salvation That's right. uh, persevere, you will persevere, once saved, always saved, all kinds of different names this goes by. And then another very, very large group of Christians, probably larger than the former, who say that you can lose your salvation at some point, that you can be within the the grace of God and fall outside that grace and find yourself at one point uh, heaven-bound and then at some time in your life 
hellbound. Mm-hmm. Um, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So people, like JJ said, this is one of the primary passages that they will set up. Now, let me get unplugged for myself here, okay? Because mm-hmm. I fall in the first category where I believe that once you are saved or once you become a believer, once you have faith, you will persevere in that faith if that faith is true. Um, yet at the same time, I do sometimes get a little bit, oh, uh, I don't know if it's anxious or, or angry, but I don't like solving this too quickly. Uh, the idea of saying to someone, okay, here's your discipleship. Let me tell you about Jesus, the cross, and the gospel, and make sure that you believe. Right after you believe, in my tradition, the first thing you do is what? Make sure they know they can never lose it. You know, so it's, now that you're saved, let me make sure you know you can never lose your salvation. And they're like, I was talking to a friend not too long ago, and he, I was telling him about this, and actually it was about 15 years ago, not too long ago. Um, but I gave him the gospel, and after we were done with the gospel, he said, I told him about how he is saved forever. He said, so there's nothing I can do to lose this. I said, no, you can't lose your salvation. He said, so I can just go on drinking. I can go on partying. It doesn't matter. And I was like, well, you know, um, you're saved for good. So if I keep on doing it, what if I go out and kill somebody? You're still saved. And I mean, he took it as like, yes, (laughs) I can do whatever I want. And he was really excited about this. And as I look for him and see his life, I see that that's kind of the path he has taken. I, I see a little bit of a profession, but this deep security, I can't lose it. It was also the case with my dad. I hesitate bringing up my dad, but his only confession his whole life was, I walked this aisle and I got saved when I was 12. Never saw one sign and saw every sign to the opposite in his life. But one time I was in his office and I looked, hanging on his office wall were scriptures that said, you can't lose your salvation. That's it. Mm. It's the only time I saw scriptures around him. Is it, are, are we doing people's service? Are we doing these passages service whenever we too quickly try to get people assured that they can never lose their salvation? Isn't it amazing how common sense gets checked at the door when we start using theological phrases mm-hmm. um, and we almost give people permission to say ludicrous things that in a different context would be patently obvious to be ludicrous. You know, it would be like a guy saying to me, well, she accepted and uh, we're getting married June 5th. And so I just want to confirm now when you're married, you're really married, right? And so then I I can do whatever I want. And that marriage certificate isn't going to spontaneously combust in whatever drawer in our house it's in, right? You know, and what's our first response going to be? You don't need, not even a Christian, anyone in society would say this guy, I think you've fundamentally misunderstood the marriage covenant. You yeah, know, if your yeah. first question is, what can I still do and still be married? Yeah. I think you've, you've misunderstood what it is that you're covenanting to, you know, and that's when we can take people to passages like 1 Corinthians six nineteen. You're not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So this idea that people are not just saved from something, but they're saved to something that they no longer belong to themselves, that salvation is this whole person thing 
where you receive grace, but you give up your rights. Yeah, and that's a big thrust of the book of James as well. And and what I love thinking about the book of James is that James is the brother of Jesus. And so you have this guy who knew Jesus his entire life, but he didn't really know Jesus as a savior. And then here, this guy becomes known for writing a book about how when you truly know Jesus as your savior, your life changes. And I think that it, it, we should expect, you know, if someone comes up to me, it's football season in Oklahoma. If someone comes up to me and says, man, I love OU football like crazy. And you're like, wow, okay, cool. And then you go up to them on Sunday at church and you're like, hey, what'd you think of the game yesterday? Oh, I didn't watch it. Oh, okay. Then next week, you know, they tell you, man, I love OU football. Uh, Then you go up to the game. Hey, what'd you think of the game? Oh, man, I didn't watch it. After a while, you're going to be like, hey, man, if you really love OU football, like you're probably going to watch the game. You know, there's certain things where if you're saying Jesus is the center of my universe, like that's probably going to mean something in your everyday life as well. And so now now here's the question, though. Sometimes that's a salvation issue. Sometimes it's a it's a just a sanctification discipleship issue that people need to be uh, guided and taught and learn more and more about who this Jesus is as their life changes. But but yes, like our lives should reflect our Savior. I'd like to add one final thing, and I, I want to hear it from you guys, Sam and Michael. But it's really good to teach, especially young believers, to let Scripture form your thinking about mm-hmm. your thinking. Mm-hmm. So in other words, if you think you understand something in Scripture, but it leads you to completely different attitudes and goals than it does to the writers of Scripture, you should be very disturbed by that. Mm -hmm. So Paul takes assurance of salvation, and it leads him to mighty effort. He talks about how confident you can be that you belong to Christ, and then his conclusion is not to lay back in a hot tub, but it's somehow his understanding of it galvanizes him to strive for changed life behavior and attitudes and actions that can form him closer and closer to Jesus. So even if you can't understand how those two things are connected, it should at least bother you. Why is it that meditating on my assurance and security leads me to lay back and it leads Paul to do the exact opposite? What am I missing? So so then my original question comes back to this. Is this something that we should be discipling people in initially and saying, first thing I need you to know is you can't lose your salvation? Well... That brings up the question of your advice to your friend 15 years ago. I don't think I would have said to him. Uh, <laughs> He's calling you out, brother. You <laughs> well, if he, if he... It was 15 years if ago. He asked yeah, the question, sure. It was last week. Yeah, if he, if he asked the question, okay, I'm saved now, so you're telling me there's nothing I can do to ever lose my salvation. I say, no, there is. I said, if you deny Jesus, you will not go to heaven. If you repudiate Christ and uh, fall into... Uh, complete unbelief and rejection of him as the son of God who died for sinners, uh, you will not enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus said it in 2 Timothy, or Paul said it in 2 Timothy chapter 2, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. Now, before somebody then jumps on that and says, oh, so, so Sam, you are among those who believe you can lose your salvation. I say, no, I'm simply saying that those who are truly saved will never deny him. But it's not, I don't think it's wise or pastorally good for us to say to individuals, oh, don't worry, there's nothing you can ever do that will result in your ending up in eternal condemnation. Oh, yes, there is. If you live according to the flesh, Romans 8, you will die. Um, If you deny Christ, he will deny you. But my point is those who live according to the flesh and who deny Christ were never born again 
in the first place. Well, then the question there was comes. A, there was a spurious, false, self-deluded so-called faith that J.J. was talking about earlier where he says, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. But in fact, they have not uh, fully and wholly trusted him from the depths of their heart. They have not been born again or justified. Then this is the question that you will get is that uh, people will say to you, then how do I know whether I have faith right now? How do I know whether I'm really secure? Because if my faith can be a profession faith right now, uh, those many of you come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and that? And they seem to think they were saved. Um, It seems like a lot of these people with these warning passages in Hebrews, the ones you just read, the ones in, in Revelation, he who overcomes there, there seems to be this, this really uh, strong ethic about maintaining our need to maintain purity, holiness, and faith in order to be saved. If that's the case, how can I ever be sure that I'm saved? Well, maybe let's stay in Hebrews. Let's go back to chapter Or should three. I ever be sure I'm saved? Uh, yeah, but go, look at Hebrews chapter 3. Let's go back because uh, what he says in chapter 6 uh, doesn't occur in a vacuum. Back in chapter 3, verse 14, he says, For we have come to share in Christ, past tense, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, that, now I'm insecure. No, I'm not. Well, I, my question is, are, are you holding your confidence in Christ? Do you believe in Jesus it's now? It's not the end yet. But do you believe in Jesus now? Yeah. Well, if you do, then you can have confidence that you have come to share in him through genuine saving faith. So long as I hold till the end. That's true. And if you do not persevere to the end, that's the indication that you never came to share in Christ in the first place. So ultimately, our security can't come until the end. No. No, no. Not, you mean our assurance? Our assurance, yes. Yeah. No, because I think— I th- Well, that's, that's Tim maybe you ought to explain that because Tim, you said Sure. Tim said John 3.16. All right? Mm-hmm. John 3.16 is a grounds for assurance. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Do you believe in him? Do you treasure him? Do you prize him as your only hope for eternal life? If you do, you can know right then and there, I'm a child of God. That profession of faith is confirmed and reinforced as we see a progressive transformation in our lives. But if I hold on to John 3.16 and, you know, carry around a little three-by-five card and anybody challenges my Christianity, I pull it out and say, ha-ha, John 3.16, while I'm walking into a strip club or while I'm going to meet my mistress or while I'm uh, 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 indulging in every conceivable manner of sin, then uh, that card-carrying individual, that little three-by-five means nothing. So I think it's a combination of factors. It's the objective reality of what Christ has accomplished and I, the promise in Scripture that if I trust Him and believe that, I am saved, together with the fact that that will bear fruit in my life. There will be progressive transformation, not perfection, but progress. And then also the reality of the Spirit of God bearing witness to my heart that I am a child of God, that I cry out, Abba, Father. So it's a it, it's a com- combination of factors that serve to bring us the assurance of salvation. And And, you know, I think that I think, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but I think that the assurance issue, we can be assured, but I can be more assured tomorrow, and I can be more assured in 10 years, and there's nothing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, maybe there's everything natural about that, because I remember 10 years ago, you know, thinking, I believe in the assurance of salvation, the security of the believer, but now here I am 10 years later, and I think, you know what? 
it's been it's been there's been some rocky stuff that has gone through my life. There's been some trials to my faith, and I'm still believing. So I'm even more assured, experientially more assured than I was before. And so there's in every respect we ought to grow in our assurance instead of expect to have perfect assurance right off the bat. That's implied. The Puritans would classically point to 1 John 5.13, where John says, I write these things to you who believe already in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And for them, maybe they're reading too much in, but the implication is there can be belief without deep assurance. The belief can be fixed, and the assurance is something that can be cultivated, that you can grow in. So John's saying, I'm writing to you that do believe, that's established, and now I want to stir up and increase your confidence that you do belong to him. Hmm. Yeah, and we have alluded to Matthew chapter 7, but it is helpful for me to, this verse is helpful, I think, uh, starting verse 21, Matthew seven twenty-one. not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And an important point here is that he says, I never knew you. He doesn't say, I knew you for a little bit, then you fell away, then I knew you again for a little bit, and you fell away. But he said, no, I've I've never known you as my child. One real quick thing, uh, because I know we're coming to an end. It's important for our listeners to read farther in in Hebrews 6 down to verse 9. Though we speak in this way about people who have these experiences and then apostatize from, from their profession of faith, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So our author is saying, I have confidence that this is not true of you. You have not fallen away. I have confidence that you really do know Christ. And then he encourages them to live in accordance with that knowledge. We hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast and invite you to join the group again next week for another edition of Theology Unplugged. Theology Unplugged is a listener-supported ministry of the Credo House. They're a theological hub and coffee shop. Their address is 109 Northwest 142nd Street in Edmond, Oklahoma, 73013. They're open Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. and Saturdays, 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. You're invited to come and visit the Credo House and maybe grab one of their signature drinks like a Luther latte or a Nicene mocha and discuss today's program or whatever else is on your mind. For more information, visit credohouse.org.